Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 159. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Before we get started, just want to remind you to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, to like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and also subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to go out and look for all those things, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you have all my social media buttons. You can also give me an email address while you're there, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show when you're there by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Any support is greatly appreciated. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to join. And you can purchase a class on secession or one on Alexander Hamilton. And those who do join the academy will get any discounts or coupons that I have for any forthcoming classes. I do have one coming up probably late spring. So be looking out for that. You can also support the Brian McClanahan show by going to learn true T R U E history.com. It's the best educational website on the web. You've got near 20 classes now from great professors, yours truly, Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, uh, just a ton of stuff out there. So go out to learn true T R U E history.com and subscribe. You can also get your Brian McClanahan show gear at redbubble.com. Just go out and look for my name at Redbubble, and you'll find all that good stuff. And if you do like this podcast, please go on out and leave a review at iTunes or any of your other uh, favorite podcast hosting places, but certainly iTunes. The more reviews, the merrier. All right. All of that said, let's talk about this topic for the week. Uh, I have not been producing two podcasts a week, and I sincerely apologize for that. I've had so much going on, I haven't been able to get to two, but you can always get two Brian McClanahan shows. One Brian McClanahan show, the other is the Abbeville Institute podcast, which I do every week, no matter what. Uh, you can go to abbevilleinstitute.org and find that. But uh, in terms of my own podcast, I hope at some point to get back to the two-a-week uh, pattern and uh, schedule. But uh, for right now, I've just been doing one. Of course, this is coming late on a Friday, but uh, I do apologize for that. Hopefully, you enjoy it. And this particular podcast, I'm going to talk about something that um, I think is one of those great misconceptions when you go out and you study American history and you get to this point in American history. And uh, it's one of those seminal moments when you start looking at the sectional conflict, and it's the Missouri Compromise. The Missouri Compromise is often portrayed in a way it should not be portrayed. It's often described in a way that would make you think that the real conflict here was slavery itself. That what you had at stake were benevolent Northerners concerned about the institution of slavery and pro-slavery Southerners who just couldn't get over the fact that the North was trying to eradicate slavery. And so when people start talking about slavery, this is if you use that term in the 21st century, that immediate, oh, the moral concern about slavery. Well, when you go back and look at the record, you'll find that that's really not the case at all. In fact, as I've already talked about on this podcast, I did an episode on that, Why Slavery, and I've mentioned it other times. Slavery was an issue, but it was an issue because of the fundamental importance of political power. It was all about power. In particular, the power of the general government and who controlled the spoils of the general government and who controlled the political economy of the United States. And so when you peel back the layers of this onion, which was 
this sectional conflict. I mean, it was a stinking onion. And you have to peel back the layers and you start finding these things and you start to realize to yourself, and this is the Michael Holt position, uh, this is exactly what people were saying at different times in American history. Now we have this uh, oftentimes called a neo-abolitionist position where the North was fighting against slavery as a moral crusade. Of course, the historical record doesn't really support that. You did have people that looked at it that way, but they were in the vast minority. But when you start peeling back the layers of this onion, you find that what really was at stake here, and everyone recognized it, was the issue of power. But more importantly, is what kind of powers did the general government actually have? Did we have a general government of limited and enumerated powers? Or did we have a general government that could legislate beyond its constituted authority? And even the entire issue of saying, okay, we're going to draw a line in the sand, and slavery can exist below that line but not above that line, did the general government have some type of enumerated power to do that? And people would say, well, wait, but this issue is so much bigger than the Constitution. Really? I mean, they talked about slavery in the period leading up to ratification. They talked about it in the Philadelphia Convention. There were no uh, restrictions on slavery at that point, other than the slave trade would be, international slave trade would be abolished in 1808, potentially. It wasn't even set in stone. So did the founders, of course, understood this. And, and even by 1820, you still had many men, members of the founding generation still alive. They were not all dead yet. They were all old men. But they, they weren't dead yet. And so you saw these people around, and they were still talking about uh, political power and the powers of the general government. Those were the big issues in 1820. And the Missouri Compromise was a way for the New England Federalists, ultimately, to find some issue to drive a wedge between the West and the South. Because for years, you go back to the... Discussion of secession in 1794, where King and Ellsworth tell John Taylor of Caroline, we want out. You go back to the, to the election of 1800, and there was a very serious discussion about secession there. You go back to uh, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. That really showed what the North was all about, and of course the Essex Junto, and the fact that they wanted, more than anything, to leave the Union if the, if the United States was going to be run by the South, and of course these agrarians, these farmers. And then you get to the Hartford Convention, right around the time of the end of the War of 1812. When you look at what they wanted out of the constitutional amendments they were proposing, it was all about political power. Just a few years later, we're talking about five years later, actually less than that when you start looking at the Missouri issue, this issue comes up again, and the North figures out, oh, what can we do here? We can create an issue that's going to drive a wedge between the West and the South, that's going to ensure that we can control the government, and we'll cloak it within this moral crusade against slavery. But again, when you peel back the onion, there's more to this. In fact, Larry Ties wrote a very interesting book about the pro-slavery ideology, and he focuses, it it's only goes up to 1840. And he does that because the, the point of the book was to show the North's development of pro-slavery ideology and how the South was being dragged along in this. I mean, the South, in his mind, really didn't develop pro-slavery ideology on its own at all. There wasn't really any Southern pro-slavery ideology that was unique to the South. In fact, he calls it an American phenomenon. And he points to the 1820s and the 1830s as a period of time in the North 
where this rigid pro-slavery ideology was developing. And that's because it was in that time period that Northerners did start to talk about the abolition of slavery, and you had a conservative reaction to that in the North, and that formed the bedrock, the basis of pro-slavery ideology and pro-slavery sentiment across the United States, North and South, in the period moving forward into the, up to 1861 when the war began between the North and the South. And so in his mind, pro-slavery ideology was not Southern, it was actually Northern. And he's got a very convincing case of this. The book was actually published in the 1980s, and when I was in graduate school, it was one that was um, highly recommended and it was mandatory to read. I'm not so certain if uh, graduate students read it as much anymore, um, but it is a very important, in fact, a seminal work. Uh, because what he does is he takes the Southern pro-slavery ideologues of the 1850s and 60s and 40s and puts them within the context of this American phenomenon. But he very clearly shows that, pro, that uh, pro-slavery ideologues were generally, um, they were that way because of their, their misbelief, their disbelief, I should say, that free slaves could live in the United States. A lot of these people were colonizationists, and you found that in Virginia as well. In fact, when you look at the votes against the Missouri Compromise in the House of Representatives, 17 came from Virginia, and that was half of the votes against the Missouri Compromise in the House. 17 came from Virginia. And when you look at what Virginians were saying, essentially they were saying, look, I mean, we don't like slavery. It's not a good thing. In fact, northern pro-slavery ideologues would say the same thing. We don't like slavery. It's not a good thing. But what are we going to do about it? If you end it, the slaves have to be sent back to Africa. Thomas Jefferson said this. James Monroe said this. I mean, the colonizationists, colonization was the primary position on slavery in America up until the 1860s when it came to anti-slavery individuals. Even Abraham Lincoln was a colonizationist. This is essentially what he what he advocated. He was against slavery, but he, he didn't think that Freed sl- freedmen could live in the United States. They had to be expatriated somewhere else. They had to go. And, of course, the other issue there was the extension of slavery into the territories and what Virginians saw as a beneficial effect for the slave and the free landowner in America because this would diffuse slavery over a larger territory, and, of course, eventually slavery would just fall apart. It couldn't, it couldn't exist in that situation. So when you look at the Missouri Compromise, though, and you look what happens here, and I'm actually going to focus not just on that, because, I mean, if you've taken any American history courses, you know a little bit about the Missouri Compromise. So I I will say this. Maybe someone's listening to this podcast is not in the United States. Maybe you're not familiar with the U.S. history. But uh, in 1819, Missouri tried to enter the Union as a slave state. The northern-dominated Congress refused to do it. And they refused to do it, again, for political power. This was about political economy. So a compromise was struck, and uh, this uh, compromise was actually worked out with the Monroe administration. Uh, James Monroe had actually said he would not sign a Missouri bill that that, that mandated Missouri had to be anything but what its people wanted it to be, which was a slave state, because at at heart here, again, was an issue about political power, and he threatened to veto it, and he actually wrote a veto message that was never used, but he relied heavily in that veto message on legal constitutional arguments for saying this is why this bill needs to be vetoed. If Missouri's not entering the Union as a slave state, it's an abridgment of the Union, it's a violation of the compact, 
It's a violation of the enumerated powers of the general government. They cannot tell a state what they can and cannot do. And Missouri had already formed a government, and it was applying for statehood. It was essentially, in his mind, already a state. They had a constitution. They had everything they needed. The only thing the Congress can do is say, you have to have a Republican form of government. Well, Missouri had that. So at that point, the general government couldn't say anything about what Missouri would be, whether free or slave. And this is the same point John C. Calhoun had made when Michigan was entering the Union as a state. And he talked about the people deciding the borders of the state and other things. So the people were important here. But this was also, you know, a major issue. What can the general government tell a state to do? What can it not tell a state to do? And how does all that work? Uh, But uh, we had uh, the compromise hammered out where Missouri would enter the Union as a slave state and Maine as a free state. So maintain a balance of power in the Senate and will also draw this line in the sand in the southern border of Missouri, 3630, through the Louisiana Purchase land. Anything below that could be slave. Anything above that could be free. And this was seen as dangerous because of the fact that um, did the Congress have the power to do this? And this gets into a legal argument. Now, there were some Southerners that said that Congress could do this because this was territory. This wasn't a state. They, they said you can't tell a state what to do, but if a, if a state you know, wants to come in as a slave state or a free state, that's up to the state. Now, territories were another question. In fact, there was actually a pretty ardent Jeffersonian, Philip Pendleton Barber, whose brother was the, was the uh, you know, James Barber, who was the guy that worked out the Missouri Compromise in many ways behind the scenes, both from Virginia. And Pendleton, Philip Pendleton Barber said, you know, the, the Congress has municipal powers in the territories. Now, I think you can argue against that by pointing the fact that um, the Congress only has the powers that are enumerated to it in Article granted to it in Article 1, Section 8. And there's nothing in that Article 1, Section 8 that says Congress can do anything about slavery in any place. But I want to focus on a very famous letter. In fact, it's considered to be one of the essential documents of American history. And it's a letter from Thomas Jefferson to John Holmes of April 22, 1820. Jefferson, of course, is in the last years of his life. He only lives um, uh, another six years. And... He writes this letter about the Missouri Compromise and about the Missouri Controversy. And this letter is often cited, in fact, misunderstood by most people that read it. So I'm going to read some of this letter, and then I'm going to talk about it. He says, quote, I thank you, dear sir, for the copy you have been so kind as to send me of the letter to your constituents on the Missouri question. It is a perfect justification to them... I had for a long time ceased to read newspapers or pay attention to public affairs, confident they were in good hands, and content to be a passenger in our bark to the shore from which I am not distant. But the momentous question, like a fire bell in the night, awakened and filled me with terror. I considered it at once as the knell of the Union. It is hushed, indeed, for the moment. But this is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. A geographical line coinciding with a marked principle, moral and political, once conceived and held up to the angry passions of men, will never be obliterated. And every new uh, irritation will mark it deeper and deeper. I can say with conscious truth that there is not a man on earth who would sacrifice more than I would to relieve us from this heavy reproach in a practicable way. The cession of that kind of property, for so it is misnamed, uh, would not cost me a second thought. If, in that way, a general emancipation and expatriation 
could be affected. And gradually, and with all due sacrifices, I think it might be. But as it is, we have the wolf by the ears, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is on one scale and self-preservation in the other. Of one thing I am certain, that is the passage of slaves from one state to another would not make a slave of a single human being who would not be so without it. So the diffusion over a greater surface would make them individually hamper, happier and proportionally facilitate the accomplishment of their, of their emancipation by dividing the burdens of a greater number of, uh, of slave owners. An, a, an abstinence, too, from this act of power would remove the jealousy excited by the undertaking of Congress to regulate the condition of the different tr- descriptions of men comprising a state. This certainly is the exclusive right of every state, which nothing in the Constitution has taken from them and given to the general government. Could Congress, for example, say that the non-freemen of Connecticut shall be freemen, or that they shall not emigrate into any other state? That's a very good question. So, this is what Jefferson is getting at here. And if you go back and look at this, first of all, he does talk about slavery in this particular letter. And he calls it, you know, he says, look, I'm, I'm against it. He actually says it's not property. He makes that statement here. And slavery is not really property. It's not what it is. If you can call it that. He doesn't really want to call it that. But he says we have the wolf by the ears, meaning we've got this, we've got this momentous question of slavery Justice would mandate that we eliminate it, but self-preservation would say we can't let the wolf go because, in his mind, it would create all kinds of problems for the future. And so he was a colonizationist. we got to take former slaves and send them back over to Africa. That was his particular position. So, But he also mentioned, as I started in this podcast, with the fact that, well, if you, if you defuse slaves out, then it's going to create a situation where slavery would eventually end because it can't exist in the Western territories as you have more and more slaves sent out there. It just it won't be practicable. It just can't work. But the key to all of this, again, it's the last, last part of this paragraph. And this is the fire bell in the night. This is not slavery. People say, well, Jefferson said slavery was the fire bell in the night. No, no, that's not what he's talking about here. That's really not what he's talking about here at all. He's talking about the powers of Congress and what is Congress going to do on this particular issue and do they have the authority to do this on this particular issue. And he said that, essentially. But this momentous question, like a firebell in the night, awakened and filled me with terror. I considered it once as the knell of the Union. It is hush indeed for a moment. This is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. A geographical line coinciding with a marked principle, moral and political, once conceived and held up to the angry passions of men, will never be obliterated. And every new irritation will mark it deeper and deeper. He's talking about the sectional conflict here, but not just about slavery. He's saying, look, it's being cl- it's clear now. What we have in the Union are two sections that are irreconcilable. They cannot see eye to eye on anything. And it's about and he dealt with this as president. Remember, if, if you know, in his first inaugural address, he said, look, we're all Republicans. We're all Federalists. It, there's those out there who want to, dis- to dissolve the Union. Well, let them say what they want to say. And, of course, I'm not for that, but they can be unmolested in their sentiment. So he had dealt with secessionists before, the Essex Junto, which was uh, a very powerful group of New England Federalists uh, led by Timothy Pickering. And, of course, Aaron Burr was a major player in the Essex Junto at one point. Same thing with Alexander Hamilton. Uh, So he had dealt with this stuff before. But now he said, you know, this is is getting very dangerous because— They're taking an issue like slavery and and elevating it to something that it shouldn't be, and they're doing things they shouldn't do. 
which is trying to figure out how to use the powers of Congress to tell a state what they can and cannot do. That was the issue for Jefferson. That was the issue for most of the individuals who were irritated with the North about the Missouri question. Missouri was following all the proper procedures for entering the Union. And if the Congress could tell the state what it could and could not do, then that state was not really a state. It was a mere province of the general government. That was the heart of this entire issue. Slavery, we have to remember, as repugnant as, as it is today, morally repugnant, and of course something that uh, is not acceptable in the 21st century, was, the, was legal in many states in the Union, even in the North, and several states still in 1820. It was not, uh, on, it was not entirely abolished in the North. So uh, this is why Northerners were dealing with it, and they dealt with it first, and this is why you have a pro-slavery ideology develop in the North, because they're dealing with this issue first and foremost before the South even had to think about it. The South really wasn't thinking about any of this stuff. And they were, I think Southerners were generally shocked by the move of the North to do this because they thought, well, wait a second here. This is not the union that we signed up for. Uh, The union we signed up for did not give the general government the power to legislate for something that was not enumerated power in Article 1, Section 8. And that's what's happening here. So this is what Jefferson says at the end of the piece. Can the general government tell Connecticut that it's, these people are freemen and these people are not? It can't do that. It can't tell Connecticut that. Why can it tell Missouri that? It can't. And if the people create the state, which is what happens, how can the general government tell those people what they can and cannot do? And this is coming from the guy that said that the Northwest Territory, under the Articles of Confederation, should be uh, out, should outlaw slavery. But that did not mean that the states that were formed out of that would be free states necessarily. In fact, there was a lot of discussion about Illinois being a slave state, about Indiana being a slave state. Certainly it was brought up. Illinois much more uh, uh, often than in Indiana, but certainly it was brought up. So when people start citing this letter and they say it's the fire bell in the night, it's, it's, this, is, this is Jefferson saying, oh my gosh, woe is me, I'm so worried about about slavery, this issue of slavery, the slavery, slavery, slavery. This is all these people have on their mind. But really what Jefferson is concerned about is the powers of the general government. It's a Jeffersonian letter. It's a Jeffersonian position. I'm concerned about the powers of the general government. I'm concerned that what we're going to do here is create a situation where the general government can do things it can't do, it shouldn't do, and it's not constituted to do which would be to tell a state what it can and cannot do on an issue that is not in the Constitution. So that's what's at stake, and that's what Jefferson is writing about here. And when we get to the Missouri Compromise, and you look at what happens, and you set this principle, which has got to be a free state and a slave state, a balance in the Union, it's a very dangerous situation to get into. And that's essentially what happens. These compromises begat other compromises, which didn't, didn't work, because you kept having to balance out this political power. There needed to be a general acceptance. Okay, well, we can't do this because it's not in the Constitution. And that this is what the, this is what Roger Sherman essentially had said out of Connecticut. Look, we have, we have limits on our power. We're going to compromise. We're going to do what we have to do. And then the South is left alone. We leave the South alone. They leave us alone. And we're good. But Jefferson saw it rightly as a problem because not of the moral plight of slavery, though he did bring up moral and political, but because of the real play on power here. That was the issue at stake. 
If you go out and read Glover Moore's The Missouri uh, Controversy, um, it's a wonderful book, uh, and I'd highly recommend it. But again, it gets into this north-south split and how Northerners uh, were actually being fairly disingenuous. They were bringing up the uh, issue of slavery simply as a political ploy in many cases. That's not to say there weren't uh, you know, principled abolitionists. Of course there were. And, and again, in the North, there were, fight, there were Northerners fighting back against this. And so the general prevailing attitude in the United States in the 1820s was colonization. Without question, it was colonization. But the real issue here, again, was power. It's the same thing when you get to the Compromise of 1850 with the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 with the discussion of secession in 1860. In fact, Larry Ties very clearly says you cannot blame pro-slavery for the dissolution of the Union. It's a very bad position to take. You can't do it at all. Uh, because slavery was pro-slavery was an American institution. This was not something that was exclusive to the South. And he uses example after example of this stuff. So it's, it's a wonderful book. If you want to go out there and read an interesting book on American intellectual history, I would get Larry Ties, T-I-S-E, his book entitled Pro-Slavery. But... Next time your friends bring up this, or you know somebody you know brings up this uh, Jefferson letter to John Holmes where he calls it the fire bell in the night, say, look, all right, yeah, he does talk about slavery for, for a couple of sentences, but really what he's concerned about here is power, and he makes that very clear in the concluding part of this first paragraph in this letter. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan.